This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with biographer Jacqueline Kent. Jacqueline joined me to talk about the life of the courageous Australian suffragist, politician and social reformer Vida Goldstein. Vida was the first woman to stand for a national parliament. Jacqueline's book is called Vida, A Woman for Our Time. We also discuss the women activists and politicians in Vida's social circles who shaped Victoria. This interview was originally broadcast on the 29th of September 2020. It was re-aired for a special International Women's Day edition of Uncommon Sense in 2021. And we're going to be speaking with Jacqueline Kent now. She's a biographer and um, this book, Vida, A Woman for Our Time, is out through Viking, which is an imprint of Penguin Books. And I welcome Jacqueline now. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hello, Amy. It's lovely to be here. I'm just so um, grateful to to get to talk with you about a topic and a person that I'm so impressed by. And uh, she has so much personality and passion and conviction as well. So it's not hard to start to empathise and uh, fall in love with the brilliance of Vida Goldstein. I'm so glad you feel like that because she's actually been in several books before now. I mean, she's, she because she was the first woman in the Western world to put a hand up to stand for a national parliament. She wasn't the only one to stand. 1903, this was, in Victoria. But, I mean, she's kind of been embalmed in a funny way because she's one of these women who did something first. And that's all people know about her. So it was an absolute Mm. delight for me to kind of get into her a bit, read her speeches, read what she wrote, see how funny she was, see how warm and friendly and terrific she was. So, yes, I'm really glad you feel that way because, um, yeah, so do I. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yes, well, I was really lucky to encounter some of the primary documents about her when I was writing a lecture, a Senate occasional lecture, a year and a half ago, and we were talking about women in federal politics and the first women who actually got elected to federal politics, which was only in 1943. So I was quite shocked about how late that was. And then was interested in all those women who came before Enid Lyons and Dorothy Tangney. And of course, Vida definitely comes up, as you say, because of her real significance in history. But also there were so many other women, I guess, lesser known women as well, who Mm did put their hand up in that first 1903 election, which you also do talk about in the book as well, and show, the, I guess, the context that Vida was working in when she put her hand up. And I wanted to start off this conversation with her formative years because I think it's similar to what we always see, which is you kind of hear about, like you've said, a kind of embalmed famous person and you just think, oh, well, they came out a fully formed human being when they Mm. ran for parliament in 1903. But in fact, there was so many different major life events and developments in Vida's life that has been instrumental, clearly, in actually getting her to that point. So um, maybe we can start by talking about her mother and father, which seemed to be really important figures in her life for different reasons. Yes, that's terrific. It's, uh, well, you know, being a biographer, biographers are always 
terribly interested in where people started out from and, you know, childhood influences and tracing threads through people's lives. But in Vida's case, I think you're absolutely right. Her mother, Isabella, and her father, Jacob, were both rebellious people in their way. Isabella was a daughter of the Western District, and she and Jacob met in Portland. Jacob was nothing like as aristocratic, in in quotes, as Isabella was. Jacob was an Irishman from, was born, I think, in Belfast, and his name, he did have a Jewish background, which Goldstein would tell you, but he escaped from his family when he was about 19, got on a ship, came to Australia, ended up in Portland and met Isabella. And she was desperate to get away from her own family because though there was money and she had a very comfortable life, she really wanted to do more with her life. And also there were real family problems, which I go into a bit in the book, which made her desperate to get away from that milieu. So they got together and they both really had a strong Christian sense of doing good for those less fortunate, not in a pious kind of way at all. They were both very energetic, both good organisers, and they both felt the same way, that it was necessary to do what they could to help those who were less fortunate. And that's what they did when they went to Melbourne, when Vida was about eight. And uh, Isabella went and worked in Collingwood, which was a pretty horrible area then because it was oh, rats and raw sewage and factories and and lots of typhoid and hideousness. She and the Reverend Charles Strong, who was a very important figure in early Melbourne history, got together and started the first crèche in Collingwood to look after the kids of factory workers. And Vida, as a young woman, when she left school, she went to Presbyterian Ladies' College... When she left school, she actually decided not to go to university. There are other issues there. But she decided that she would help her mother in her work for the poor and in charity work. And that's how she started honing what obviously were innate organisation skills. That's how she started, working with her mum. It is really, really interesting to see that relationship with her mum and the fact that they were so such a powerful duo advocating mm. on so many different issues, but really with that focus of disadvantage and particularly women and working mothers. Those descriptions of Collingwood and the slums in Melbourne were pretty shocking and rather mm. visceral when you read them and you kind of feel for the women who were clearly just doing their absolute best to scrape by and, and make it and feed their children. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. There were two big things that they got involved in that Vida really started to, you know, feel her wings flying a bit. One was the monster petition which was 1901, and it was a petition signed by 30,000 women in Victoria to get the state vote because Victoria was the last of all the former colonies to give women the right to vote in state elections. The federal one came in 1903, which we'll talk about in a sec, I guess, but really... That was the big thing. And she helped. She went around knocking on doors and saying to women, will you sign this petition? And that's how, that was really her first sort of solo effort. But then she and her mother 
were on the committee that put together the Queen Victoria Hospital, which was the first hospital in Victoria and I think probably in Australia that was set up by women for women. And thanks to a woman named Annette Bear Crawford, who was one of the great movers and shakers of this campaign, they started what was called a shilling fund. So they'd go around again and ask women, please, can you contribute a shilling to the building of this hospital? And it was enormously successful because even women in rural Victoria who weren't going to use the hospital, which would be in Melbourne, put their money into it because... Women really felt very uncomfortable about male doctors. Women doctors were only just starting to appear. They'd only recently got the right, women had only just recently got the right to graduate as doctors. And so they were sort of really wanting that to keep going, of course. And women in the provinces of Melbourne, in in the outer reaches of Melbourne, just decided this was a really good thing and they were supporting the cause. So they got a lot of shillings and eventually the hospital was built. There was those two experiences, I think, and working with Annette Bear Crawford that really made Vida into the administrative organiser and incredibly competent organiser that she did become. Indeed. And that was a really fascinating part of that story was the formation of the Queen Victoria Hospital. And you write that it was opened in, was it 1897? I think so, yes. It was yeah. a bit later, I think. Oh, it was, it was two to... years later. It was meant to be 1897. That's right. For yes. Queen Victoria's Jubilee, which was 1897, she'd been, hang on, 60 years on, on the throne. They were going to open this. That's why it was called the Queen Victoria. But it was a bit later than that. And, um, and it was interesting that they were crowdfunding almost. It was like this, mm. as you say, this like late 19th century version of crowdfunding to just ask for what people might be able to afford if it's our equivalent of a dollar fifty cents or $2. And, uh, and it was interesting to hear about the fact that there were two hospitals that were seeking to be set up, both being pioneered by women. The other one yeah. um, was an infectious diseases hospital, which was being pioneered by a wealthy person called Janet Lady Clark. Janet Lady Clark, yes, that's right, a very well-known philanthropist. And on the conservative side of politics, it was quite funny. They were being set up at the same time, both sort of very good works, but the way being set up was entirely different because Janet Lady Clark, being um, a well-known philanthropist and a a pretty good all-round person, I think, very conservative, though, she had really good contacts with the male establishments of Melbourne at the time, politics, business, medicine. And so she was able to use those to spearhead the formation of the Infectious Diseases Hospital, which I think, was it it Fairfield? I think it was... um, Yes. I think think at last, I think it was finally... um, Oh, which premier... Oh, Jeff Kennett. I think Jeff Kennett. (laughs) Like, yeah, Jeff Kennett closed it down a few years ago. I think. Sounds but, like him. Um, mm, I think I think it was actually. Mm. And, uh, but the Queen Victoria Hospital is still there. I think. Yeah. I well, think. I, I d- it's not called the Queen Victoria no. um, anymore. I don't know if it's the one I'm thinking of. I will check I think, that out. Yeah, I think, I think it's okay, listeners. 
this is your cue. Yeah. Yeah. Let's tweet know. me yeah, on right. tweet me on social media while we're talking, and you can get a special shout out for your quick googling. I wanted to ask about the way that women were seen, their role at the time in the late 19th century in Australia, because you introduce us to a number of really prominent women who had different personalities, different priorities, but they were all really phenomenal women in terms of their presence, their intellect, the way that they spoke from women that most people would be familiar with, like Catherine Helen Spence from South Australia, who um, is a really important figure in Australian politics as well and Australian life mainly for her. Well, she was engaged in a lot of things, including the constitution and the formation of that for Australia, but also particularly interested in social issues and social justice. But there were other women who seemed to be really important friends to Vida, but also mentors to Vida. And you did mention just there one of those great women who we perhaps aren't as familiar with either and her significance. Yes. In fact, that was one of the nice discoveries of this. They all became prominent. These women who were obviously intelligent, pretty well educated, very vocal and very determined. There was a whole cohort of them all over Australia, in fact, but uh, I dealt most specifically with the ones in Melbourne. And there were two or three I'd like to mention here. One was Henrietta Dugdale, who, with Annie Lowe, set up the first women's suffrage organisation in Victoria. And Henrietta was always portrayed as a battle axe, you know, sort of large, you've seen, we've all seen the cartoons, you know, sort of fussy bonnet, um, bustle, hugely overweight, probably glasses, you know, big mouths, all that. Henrietta was always portrayed like that because she was, um, she, she was an exponent of what was known as rational dress, which was extremely hideous. There were these dreadful bloomers that women wore, but they were practical because you could bicycle in them. And, and women bicycling was, it sounds so extraordinary now, but women riding bicycles was revolutionary because women had always been sitting around waiting to be taken places by men unless they rode themselves. But, you know, the bicycling was, was a badge of independence. Henrietta Dugdale was doing that. She was extremely scathing about men and how they were running things. And her... Um, colleague was Annie Lowe, who is really interesting. Annie Lowe, nobody knows much about Annie Lowe, but she travelled all over Australia. She knew Indigenous people. She There was a Mr Lowe, but we, he didn't sort of figure much. But she is famous for one thing in particular, apart from starting the suffrage organisation with Henrietta, and that is her wonderful quip about when the shrieking sisterhood, as they were called, which is women who were assertive, they were known in the press as the shrieking sisterhood. And Annie Lowe, it was Annie Lowe who said, I would like to remind everybody that it is the male cockatoo who does the shrieking, which I've always <laughs> rather liked. <laughs> and it's the so other funny. one, yeah, 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 she's good. The other one I like I like to mention is Britannia Smythe, who is not really well known at all. She was extraordinary. She was a very bright woman from England. She came out to Victoria and she started, she became one of the first in the intake of women studying medicine in the late 80s. 
but she couldn't afford to keep going because she didn't have any money. So she withdrew and got married, started up a grocery shop, and she spent her time preaching and advocating responsible and reliable contraception for women. And underneath the counter in her green grocer shop, she sold contraceptives, mostly diaphragms, because the thing about diaphragms, of course, is that um, no men would know that their women were using them, which was mm. the point. Mm. So it, it was very much a woman's decision. And she advertised in the press and she she imported quite a lot of her contraceptive devices from, from France. And you read the you read the ads and you sort of think, oh, really? You know, <laughs> that works. <laughs> um, but she was um, she was terrific. She's about six feet tall. She was easily caricaturable, I'm afraid. She she was large, large bosomed, and six feet tall, and wore blue glasses. So you know, amazing. Absolute, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there are a lot of others. There are a lot of others. They were the three three of the more prominent ones, but there were a lot of women backing them up just quietly mm. yeah it's so true some of those anecdotes were what I really loved about um, this book was hearing about those other women as well and getting to mm. know their personalities and the kinds of challenges they had and obviously she was really really smart um, and could have done a medical degree but she's done really important things like giving lectures on love mm. courtship and marriage writing booklets on women's health so these are just really important things that in the, the late 19th century are actually quite radical things to be doing because these aren't public topics of discussion. Certainly not. They weren't either. And, of course, the problem was that there were very few women that women could go to for discussions about these things because, you know, men, you're going to a male doctor and if you're a young woman, a venturous young woman, you know, you were likely to be refused. Of course you'd be refused. So there was a moral element in it which was absolutely done away with by Britannus Smythe and other women because they focused on the practical. They they really did. And, um, and that was why they were so successful because women went to them because they knew that they would get a fair hearing without judgment. Yeah, it was great to hear about the really interesting setup of an outpatients clinic for women in Latrobe Street in Melbourne offering pregnancy advice and preventative medical services and you write that very soon after opening they had over 2000 women patients which is really quite staggering and they were not just well-to-do patients it was across the spectrum of people in Melbourne women who mm. no doubt found it very uncomfortable to talk to a male doctor but perhaps even the male doctors didn't really understand where women patients were coming from given that we really only even today in women's health, don't often have a great understanding about women's health and the importance of women's experiences with their bodies. So, um, yeah, it was really, really nice really to hear. Important. Yeah. 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 I just heard the other day that the site of that first clinic, it's near the Welsh church in um, in the Trobe Street, it's a little white church coming oh, near the library. Oh, yes, yes, yep. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and wow. uh, someone told me that the other day, so I'm just passing that on. I didn't <laughs> know that, but there you go. <laughs> I'll look it up. That's yeah. so cool. Talking of old churches and buildings, I have 
got a tweet from Graham Kidd, one of our listeners, who says it's the Queen Victoria Women's Centre. So the building uh-huh. is still there, and that's, I believe, Lonsdale Street, but it is not a hospital anymore. And I was thinking of the Carlton Refuge, um, which was actually established in 1857 in Carlton oh, right. on Kenton Street. Yeah. yeah, and that was for... That was um, established as a maternity ward and a foster home for infants and was focused on maternal and childcare and was kind of morphed into various iterations um, in the mid-20th century. So, um, Interesting, yeah. yeah. I was just thinking then that Victoria really was at the forefront of, you know, improvements for women. I mean, social, all those things that we've just been talking about. And it is even more extraordinary in that case that they that the Legislative Assembly didn't see their way clear to giving women the state vote until 1908 when there are all these other terrific things going on. It's quite extraordinary. It really is. Isn't it? And, and I was mm. interested in the the fact that the bill in Victorian State Parliament did get passed at that lower house level every oh. time it was put forward, but it was the Legislative Council that kept on pushing it back. I know, really yeah. It's not only not it's some I really wanted to spend a bit more time on that, but you know, it was only it was part of Vida's story and not main focus necessarily. But the fact that the Legislative Council was so much the province of conservative, rich blokes, which it was. And uh, that sort of needs a bit of unpicking, actually, because you have a look at the difference between the Legislative Council and the Legislative Assembly, and with one sort of forward-looking progressive and the other really being desperately conservative and keen to keep the women out. I think Janet Lady Clark and quite a few of her colleagues were not keen on women having the vote. I think they thought that was a bit much. So that not all the women, of course, thought that women should have the vote because um, Vida knew that, that it wasn't just men who were against this. There were quite a lot of conservative women as well. But just the the extent and the concentrated determination not to give women in Victoria the vote has always struck me as being quite extraordinary. And it only happened in 1908, the last of the states to do this, while they'd been the first to even contemplate it, because of the Premier Sir Thomas Bent could no longer resist the pressure from well, from wasn't just from the legislative, the legislative assembly. It was um, it was other parts of society. So he had to give in in the end, which he did. Finally, finally, yeah. yeah. And the monster petition that those women put together is actually at the Victorian Parliament, and I did get to see it. It's quite a phenomenal. Um, it's, it's so big, isn't it? So huge. long. <laughs> it really is a monster. Yeah, yeah it, is. it really is. To think of, yeah, that people were carting around huge pieces of paper and taking it door by door to different women. And also, as we've already just been referencing there, the fact that I think people nowadays might assume that all women, you know, wanted the vote, all women Mm, wanted equal rights, but this is not the case. Just like for men, there were men who wanted women to get the vote. There were also men who didn't. That's right. And you do, at the end of Chapter 6, 
mention the fact that Vida's father, Jacob, sat with her in the parliament watching one of these suffrage bills be put forward. But in fact, he wasn't there to support Vida. He was actually there to oppose that bill. So I also found that a really interesting point that you've uncovered. Actually, that was one of the most maddening things about the research because that came from, I think it was the age or the Argus, I think it was the Argus, just mentioned that they were sitting together and it was the lion lying down with the lamb, which mm. that all they said, they didn't say which was which. I mean, you could probably guess, but, um, but that is the only real intimation I could find, you know, in print, that Jacob really didn't want this to happen. You could work it out from that, why and where, because even though his kids, he wanted all his kids, the five of them, four girls and a boy, he wanted them all educated. But it was that, I am convinced, it's that thing about, well, you know, for the future generations, women should be well-educated, but they were not to have ambitions of their own. And I think that's probably what split the marriage, which it did in the end. Mm. But um, so you can, it's kind of working backwards from that fact, but... Jacob was a fairly peppery character and the marriage, as I said, the marriage, his marriage to Isabella didn't work out very well to the point they didn't divorce, but he went and lived elsewhere in the same building, mind you, but they, they still mm. lived um, separately. But it was just so interesting to see that there was a conflict there and that's what you have to do when, you, when you're doing this sort of work. You think, God. I didn't know that. Where did that come from? Yeah. And you have to find that. Yeah. No, it's so interesting. It seems like it's something that's, you know, one of those lucky finds that you get something that is very revealing and maybe makes some of the other primary documents take on a new meaning and make more sense and tend to, to link things together, ideas in your mind. And it's really great that the way that you write this book feels like such a, a, a story where you can start to connect with all of these characters and feel a kind of sense of empathy for them and an understanding of what they were going through. And I wanted to pick up on a couple of things before we get to Vida's run for Parliament, which she did a number of times. But one of the really great things that she did was establish a couple of publications in Melbourne. One of them that you highlight early on in the book was the Australian Woman's Sphere. And um, you talk about a kind of statement that the principal from PLC, the school she went to, made in a newsletter and it was that women's sphere, it is said, is in the home, truly, but we cannot consent to have the radius from a vital centre arbitrarily limited. The sphere is a circle of chalk which the tide of necessity and the steps of these noble times is obliterating. And, mm. um, gosh, that's such a great statement, yeah. but also very, very radical. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. I was just going to bring in the other um, publication for discussion, which was The Woman Voter as well, and that ah, yes. um, is just such a great, fascinating read to download the PDFs, which you can do from the archives and read through it. It's just lovely. Yeah, I had a lot of fun with those too because really they are, they're easy to read. Um, and yeah. the clarity, yeah, they're very clearly written. There's very little sort of journalistic fussiness that you often see in periodicals of that time. I mean, one thing you notice when you're going through newspapers for this sort of period is the fact that um, 
the Bible and Shakespeare were kind of common currency and people sort of used phrases from both to show how well educated they were. Vida didn't bother with any of that stuff. She just said what she had to say and uh, and so did the contributors to her newspapers. I suspect that she wrote most of both of them, really, although she did go away occasionally and come back and kept it in other people's hands. But I think she always was a strong contributor to it, and I think it's a real tribute to the clarity and force of her writing, don't you think? Oh, yeah. She's clearly very articulate, but also she knows how to speak to everyone. And Mm. she really, I mean, you do talk about the fact that her family at different points were more well off than a number of other families and they weren't doing too badly in the sense that Mm. they could rent homes in fairly nice suburbs. And, you know, even Vida's sister, I believe, married a a man who eventually became wealthy, what you call in that time a millionaire, and he also provided some kind of support to Vida and her newspapers and publications. Yeah, that was uh, Henry Hyde Champion. That was another gloriously interesting find. I just found something in, of all things, the St. James Gazette. Thank you, yeah. Trove. That yeah. sort of said that he'd become the uh, the legatee of his of a cousin who had been killed in one of the Afghan wars and bequeathed all his fortune to Henry. And I thought, hang on, that solves a huge problem because I had no idea how she funded all this stuff. And, it's, mm. you know, I think Henry must have given her the odd pound or two. In fact, I'm sure he did. Yeah. yeah he mm. sounded like he mm. had a lot of personality as well. He did. In fact, he's a very interesting character also. He was uh, he was a bit of a gadfly. Um, you know, he always supported really good left-wing causes, set up um, a bookshop with his wife, Elsie, who was Vida's yeah. sister, called The Book Lover and Book Lovers Library, and uh, actually championed quite a lot of new writing at the time and was, in fact, for a while, George Bernard Shaw's Australian agent. So he's, he's, worth, a, he's worth a good biography on his own, actually. Really, yeah. he's a very interesting bloke. Mm. Yeah, no, that's so true. Just one other male figure who pops up briefly was John Monash, which I was really surprised by. So was I. <laughs> yeah. How did that happen and why was he significant? Oh, well, he wasn't really. He was uh, he was the one who got away as far as Vida's family were concerned. He kind of met Vida when she'd left school and she was she was very good looking. She really was. You can see the photographs of pictures of her. And he decided that he would, quote, fix his interest with her. And so he was kind of a bit interested in her mm. and she thought he was a pompous prat, basically. <laughs> and, uh, and which he probably was, and he yeah. was very, very annoyed about that. Didn't think this was a good thing at all. But um, and she turned him down. She spurned him. It was terrible. Yeah. But in fact, uh, they became friends later on, and I think they stayed friends. The point about meeting him, I think, was that she went to PLC, and PLC was not only a hotbed of interesting radical ideas for women, but it was a really good sort of hub for meeting people of influence. And I think when she started her political career, I think that she drew on quite a few of the contacts that she'd made as a result of going to PLC and as a result of her father's work in the militia, because he was a, a colonel in the local militia and her mother's charity work. So she's really quite, um, she's quite well credentialed, Vida, when she started her political career. 
Yeah, and you do mention the fact that she even went to school with Nellie Melba. I've got a theory about that. Yeah, Nellie Mitchell. Nellie Mitchell, who was also say, also sang in the choir of the Australian Church, which was the church that they all belonged to. My theory about Nellie Melba and Vida goes like this. I have no evidence for this, I might tell you. <laughs> but the point is that Vida was known as a really good, solid, forceful public speaker, and she knew how to project her voice in large spaces. In fact, she she spoke in the Royal Albert Hall a few years later in London. And I have a theory that I'd like to think that Nellie Mitchell actually gave her lessons in voice projection. So (laughs) I have no idea. You never know, no. But it's one of the nice things about this, this sort of work because you can kind of, you can join a few dots even if they're not, Real dots, you know. Not, yeah. Uh, you can yeah, you can join sort of things in your head, but um, I wouldn't be surprised. They were contemporaries. It does give it some colour as well, and to hear about these great women who were very excellent at networking and working together. Mm. About so many issues, of course, we're talking about women's suffrage um, and also the political arena. I wanted to touch on the fact that Vida actually went to America just before she ran for parliament. And it was important because she was actually attending the first conference of the International Woman Suffrage Alliance in Washington and was representing Australia, which, as you say, was almost a unanimous choice, which goes, I guess, to show just how well-known she was at the time and mm. how prominent she was as a campaigner on this issue, not just for Australian women, but for women in Britain as well um, as other countries. And I, I was really shocked to hear that she actually met Theodore Roosevelt, president of the US. That's right. That's a lovely story. Yeah. She, um and I don't think he impressed her as much as people like Susan Anthony and other women who were the great suffragists. By the way, one of the interesting things about this whole period were the, the tabs that various women's groups, suffrage women's groups, kept on each other. They all knew each other. They all they all corresponded incessantly from the US, the UK, from Turkey, from Switzerland, from Australia, all over the place. So that was um, that was really interesting. But Vida, yes, she went to the US and she was there for several months. And she did meet Theodore Roosevelt, who received her and sort of said sort of things like, oh, Australia, what a wonderful young country and all that stuff. And she came out and one of his colleagues said to her, what did you think of our teddy? And she said, I have a copy of the Stars and Stripes. I shall put it around his photograph. And if he does something I disapprove of, I shall turn that photograph to the wall. <laughs> and the guy said, oh, you won't have to do that with Teddy. I mean, he's all right. And I just thought when I read that, I thought, how Australian. Yeah. <laughs> you know, really sort of taking, you know, taking the mickey just very quietly and the American reaction of not understanding irony. I Mm. I really enjoyed that. That was fun. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Very little deference to power and and politicians, which is great. Oh, very much. Very, very little. Yes. You might have been the president of the United States, but for Vida, didn't have all the same reaction as she did to meeting Carrie Chapman Cass and uh, Susan B. Anthony and all the other prominent women who were trying to get the vote for American women. 
Yeah, I'm speaking with Jacqueline Kent, who is a biographer, and we're talking about Vida Goldstein, and we're talking about Jacqueline's new book, Vida, A Woman for Our Time. Now, Jacqueline, it's really wonderful to hear and read all about Vida as a political campaigner, because as we've already referenced early on, she was one of those women in 1903 who put her hand up to run for federal parliament in the Senate representing Victoria. And as we've said, there were other women who ran for the Senate and also one who ran for the lower house. And they were all, as you say, progressive independents. None of them were aligned to a particular political party. But Vida was so adamant about not being tied to a political party and was really quite clear that she would remain an independent and she did go on to contest other elections. So it's interesting to see that she was unwavering in her commitment to being an independent. Could you share with us that first run and the kind of convictions that really made her who she was as a political candidate? She never varied very much. She she ran five times between 1903 and 1917. And in the last two times, she actually ran as a pacifist candidate during World War I, which took a certain degree of fearlessness, I've always felt. I've always admired her for that because, um, you know, she had to put up with quite a bit. There was a lot of hostility in all all her runs. The first one, though, was, good heavens, fancy a woman standing for Parliament, you know, as if it was something really weird. And apparently constitutional lawyers went off to see if she was even eligible. So there you go. But basically her position never, as I said, didn't vary much when she was talking about the rights of women. What she was interested in the first time she went was equality and education. She always felt that the question of whether giving women the vote made any difference was completely irrelevant, which, of course, it is. She said the point about giving women the vote is not whether it would make a difference, but the point is it is a badge of equal citizenship. Women were equal citizens, therefore they deserved and should have the vote. And she didn't vary from that very much. And what she was after was equality in such things as divorce laws and the role of women and pay, of course, equal pay. And, you know, women having jobs where they were dealing with other women, for example, in prisons and so on. And so all those things, it was all to do with equality. She always also felt, and she was very strong on this, that women alone understood the issues that confronted women and children. Men didn't have a clue and that they needed to be educated about this and women in Parliament was exactly what was needed for that to happen. And she also didn't think that um, women should have any particular deference due to them. It was getting the same rights as men that she was keen on. The education side of it was she was very keen to put up her hand to see that women understood what their new right to vote actually meant and the influence they could have. And she travelled around Victoria for two months. It's quite extraordinary when you look at the... In summer, wearing all those enormous clothes (laughs) with one trunk, (laughs) she would travel around and everywhere she went she was 
a phenomenon. She, everybody sort of flocked to hear her. And she showed she was pretty good on the hustings too. She did something that no woman had ever done. Apart from speaking in public, which women were not supposed to do because, you know, it was not something that women... Women didn't push themselves forward, right? That was the mm-hmm. idea. But she was very quick on her feet. And when she got hecklers, she knew exactly how to deal with them. At one meeting, she looked at a group of people and said, well, have you any other questions? And they didn't. And she said, well, good. Well, in that case, I'll ask you some questions. (laughs) And what do you think about this? What do you think about that? I need to ask you questions because I need to know what you think if I get into Parliament. I mean, Mm. really smart way to do it. And, of course, she she was also pretty good at the put-down. There was one bloke who said, don't you wish you were a man? And her reply was, don't you wish you were? She was was extraordinary. Yeah, I think she was absolutely wonderful. And that's the pattern that she carried on with with all her other attempts to get into Parliament. The first time she tried, she got about 51,500 votes, which was about half the number of votes that the most successful male candidate got in Victoria. They changed the system shortly afterwards. In 1924... Voting became compulsory. It was, it was not compulsory. and It was um, first past the post in voting. I suspect that now, in fact, I do think, and I've had a bit of pushback about this, but I really do believe that had the current system of Senate preference and election been there at the time, I think she would have got in. Well, 51,500 votes is a lot when you're thinking yeah, it about it. And you yeah. do say that voting wasn't compulsory at the time and also that just because she was a woman didn't mean that women would actually vote for her, which was one of the points that Catherine Helen Spence somewhat brutally made. She sounds like she was a particularly a, a realist, but it is true that Although Vida was saying, you know, loyalty to one's sex is important um, in this situation, it didn't necessarily end up that way. You couldn't expect that every single woman who had the vote was going to choose Vida in Victoria. No, that's absolutely true. And to do her justice, Vida never got bitter about that. She never, she sort of thought, oh, well, you know, that's the way it is. And she talks about one of the reasons she didn't get in in the first time, her first attempt was the prejudice of sex was one of the phrases that she used. She didn't say the male prejudice of sex or not enough women voted for me, etc. She She just left that one open. And I think that was pretty much how she felt, that she didn't really expect every man or every woman, as you say, to vote for her just because she was a woman. And in terms of the other runs that she had, she did run in the seat of Kuyong, which is, you know, nowadays known Mm. as a very blue ribbon liberal with a capital L seat. And even then, I believe Kuyong was quite a well-to-do suburb or electorate, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And the reason she chose Kuyong, which is pretty much where it is now, I think, the reason she chose it was that in her previous campaigns, she had the most votes from women in that electorate. Mm. Um, she was unfortunately standing against somebody who'd already been a parliamentarian, Sir Robert Best, and, you know, he actually did quite well and she didn't. So, and he'd been the member before. So she really, you know, she didn't really have much chance with that. 
But I really think I'd like to sort of talk a little bit about this independent business because everybody said, oh, the reason she didn't get in was that she wasn't a member of a political party. Well, they weren't exactly knocking down the doors to get to her, you know. I mean, they, they were they were male establishments. They had both the Conservatives and Labor had already set up the way they were going to run pretty well forevermore, the way they run now, mm. more or less. And, you know, she was knocking on the door to be let in and they weren't going to let her in. The Trades and Labor Council actually supported her a couple of times, I think. But the political parties didn't. And it was the same with the other women who stood all the women. Up until about 1943, all the women who tried to stand for national parliament stood as independents and none of them got in. And it is because, I think, of the party organisation. Yes. Well, I mean, even when we have heard, of course, that Susan Ryan passed away over the weekend, she was the first Labor, female Labor cabinet minister at the federal level, and that was in the 80s. So, you know, these are very male-dominated parties with a very particularly blokey culture that even some of the men didn't quite fit into. Um, No, that's right. Of course, Mm. if you're thinking about Labor, it's probably even more so given the prominence of trade unions within Labor Mm. at the time. So, yeah, it's a a very important point that you make about the parties, no doubt, not really desperately trying to recruit women as parliamentarians because they'd like to get elected themselves. Well, that's right. And even, I quoted the book, I think, um, a woman who was the coordinator of Emily's List in Victoria said really that women have very little to do with the organisation of the Federal Labor Party. And of course, it's certainly true with the Conservatives, but they don't. The guys run the game, basically, still. They mm. do. That's very mm. true. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and one of the interesting points we should make, because we've said that the first women elected to federal parliament were elected in 1943 and Vida died in August 1949. So she did mm-hmm. actually see women finally make it, two women, which I guess is a nice thing to see at least, is that she saw it, it eventually happened, but obviously it wasn't for her. No, and in fact, she did write letters of congratulation to those first successful women. But, you know, there were lovely echoes of 70s feminism later on because she wrote to friends. She used to get really frustrated in the 20s and 30s because they weren't radical. They all women were not radical. They weren't doing what the right... Well, I mean, they were in the middle of a depression apart from other things. But really, you hear women who came to, well, Susan, Susan Ryan's generation, I guess, who came to prominence in the 70s saying exactly the same thing about young women now. I think it's what always happens, actually. Yeah. But it's no, not true good. now. I mean, I can't imagine even 10 years ago that, you know, Malala and Greta Thunberg would have gained any prominence at all, let alone having the courage to stand up and do what they've done. Institutionally, though, I don't think a lot's changed. Yeah, the way that politics is done, the game that's played and Mm. um, the parliament as well, it is very much the same Um, and it is a constant discussion for debate really about have things changed, how do you change a system that is just Mm. so set in its ways and some people have suggested that it's about having more role models but I would say it's not, you know, that's important to see that you know, you can actually do this, you can put your hand up, but it's so much more than that. And um, yeah, I wanted to bring in something that 
comes up for women in politics a lot and for Julia Gillard, for so many different women who are leaders, and that's their appearance and the fact that people uh, will often, or journalists in particular, it seems, but also the general population, when a woman runs for parliament, it's so much harder to get that cut through on policy and content when you can often be sidelined by these very fringe distractions, including, you know, what hat someone's wearing or whether their haircut is any good. And Vida was also subject to that annoying, but also sometimes, I guess, insulting constant remarks about one's appearance. That's true. And the, what makes it even worse in Vida's case, I think, was that, that was, it was mostly admiring. Yeah. I mean, she never, got, she, she never got told that she was a battle axe or a bad person in that respect. But it was the fetching bonnets. It was the little rose-trimmed whatevers. And, you know, it was all that stuff. And she was always praised for the beauty of her dress. And in fact, when you look at the photograph, she was pretty good. She turned out really, really, really beautifully. She was beautifully turned out. But, um, you know, and if you sort of call, if you call people on that, they'll just say, but we said nice things about her, you know, as if, <laughs> as if, say, as if that counts really. And uh, yeah. as I say in the book, it's a pretty short road between Vida's fetching bonnets and Julie Bishop's red shoes. I mean, really, Mm. (laughs) it's never changed. And that brings in the role of the press, of course, which has been mostly unremittingly hostile to or reluctant to engage with women in that way. And I think Susan Ryan, the late Susan Ryan, would have agreed with that because she got a really bad rap when she wanted to take money away from private schools as you recall, she did. She got, um, you know, she decided that they were all too rich. So the press gave her hell, absolute hell, and it was damaging the party. So she had to be demoted. She was. Yeah. Oh, so frustrating. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. It, it happens mm. so so many times across history. It repeats. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just finally, I wanted to bring in something else that is interesting to me in the sense that Vida never married or had children, which to me, it shouldn't be a big deal. But at the time, it no doubt might have been noted. But I wondered whether it was. Was that something anyone noticed? That's interesting, isn't it? No, because I think people took for granted at the time that any woman who was going to be prominent in or seek prominence in any public area was ipso facto not married or with children. Well, Enid Lyons knocked that one on the head with having 11 (laughs) kids or whatever she had in 1943. But I think that was part of it. She was never stigmatised as a spinster because she was far too stylish and smart for that. Mm. But I wonder too about, I mean, about her relationship. She was very close to Cecilia John, who was one of her great helpers during the um, World War I campaigns. They were close. They travelled together. They were a power unit. I am pretty sure they probably were a couple mm. because Cecilia did identify as lesbian. Vida never did. But I think they probably were. But, I mean, you know, how do you know, really? it's. Uh, I actually thought that Vida was one of these people who she never used, as far as I can work out, she never used sort of, she never flirted, she never did, she never did the sort of, made played those sort of 
sexy games with men. I mm. think she thought that the most important thing about her was always her work and her beliefs, and I think that was pretty consistent. It's really wonderful to see that that was an early role model, really, of courage of your convictions and doing whatever you think is right, even if it doesn't fit with the social norm of the time. Yeah, I think so too, yeah. yeah. Jacqueline, in terms of Vida, I mean, you must have gotten to know her so well in a way. Obviously, you never got to meet, but in a way you kind of have because you've consumed and read so much of her writing and also, of course, the, the people who knew her so well. And your subtitle for this book is A Woman for Our Time. And that resonated with me because I do feel getting to know her myself that she does feel like a very progressive, fresh, insightful person and even Mm. some of the views and things that she was advocating on then have a lot of currency now. That's right, yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to ask about her present-day legacy and if you were thinking of ways that would appropriately recognise her achievements and her importance. Of course, this book is one great way of doing that, but are there things that you feel should be done or could be done to better remember great women like Vida Goldstein that you've gotten to know? Oh, yes. I think it would be one very good step would be to make the seat of Goldstein, which was gazetted in 1984, make that a very much woman's, make sure a woman always held it because it's never been held by a woman. I think um, Tim Wilson's the member now. No, Tim Wilson's the member now. But a couple of, you know, it's always been liberal held and held by a bloke. Mm. And and several of the people who have occupied that seat have beliefs that Vida would have absolutely excoriated. So (laughs) that would be one thing. Um, I don't know, things named after her, please. Yes, you know, the usual things like, um, well, societies, lectures, hospitals, Mm. roads. It would be really nice if we were much more aware, and this is not just Vida, but it would be really, really good if we were much more aware of the people whose names, particularly women, whose names are given to things. You know, what is the Rose Scott liquor? Who is Rose Scott? That kind of thing. And I think we are notoriously bad at this. We really are. We do not put blue plaques up on places where famous people have lived, particularly famous women. And we really should because, honestly, dealing with Vida and all that, we do have quite a lot to be proud of and to recognise, and we should and we don't. Yeah, that's so, so true. And I think we should be walking through a park and seeing Vida's statue and going, hey, who was that person? Because we do that with lots of men who, you know, no doubt made contributions. But I think that visibility and acknowledgement of not just Vida, but as you say, these other great prominent women that you bring into this book really Mm. do deserve to be remembered far more than they are. And, um, yeah, I think this book is such a great way of remembering Vida. So I did want to say thank you for doing such a brilliant job with this book. You're a very talented writer. (laughs) And uh, I think you've really done her justice. Oh, thanks very much. And by the way, just to finish, maybe the listeners of Triple R can get a shilling fund going to get a statue going. What do you reckon? Oh, that's a great (laughs) idea. 
I'm going to put yeah, that on the good. on the future plans list. Thank you for that. Jacqueline, it's been a real pleasure chatting with you and I'm so grateful for your time and insight and I hope you have a, a lovely week. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it, Amy. Thanks a lot. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.